Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Charles Marshall here, out of the west coast of California, uh, broadcasting live from Southern California. And as always, the West Coast Foreclosure Show, as I sometimes call it, is broadcast every other Thursday. You will be back next Thursday. And here we are at July 11, 2019. In this episode, we are going to be discussing quiet title judgments, and I'm very happy to have back Bill Padalo to provide his piercing insights and flesh out lots of important details for our listeners. Uh, Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Good to be back. And so there's – I would call this a little bit of a trend – not like a uh, a policy that you see a lot or a development that there are tons of cases related to, but it is a trend in California where borrowers from our side and, and our uh, our fellow our fellow uh, warriors in the trenches, so to speak, they are sometimes seeking to quiet title through a default quiet title judgment. And there are a number of ways that these cases come forward, and uh, Bill will be able to speak a bit to that as well. The fundamental here for today's purposes, for today's show, is to go into a specific case where there was a default quiet title judgment taken. And so often the the chain of title, the chain of custody related to the note and deed of trust are in such disarray that a plaintiff from the borrower's side is able to get a default judgment because, in essence, no defendant on the other side shows up in court. And, of course, there is a fairly protective, certainly somewhat elaborate service process for lawsuits in California, as there is in all 50 states, as there is in the federal system. And essentially, you have to go through layers of attempted service. Publishing would be the absolute last option. And even in that respect, the types of 
written media where publishing would take place, they are such that a lot of people on the other side, the institutional players like MERS here, would uh, have a more than reasonable shot of seeing that there actually is a pending lawsuit. Nevertheless, uh, the, 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 the proper service policy was, was followed here, and yet MERS is uh, now a plaintiff seeking to vacate the default quiet title judgment. And their main basis for doing so is to challenge the service. Yeah. Uh, in this particular uh, case, yeah, why don't you jump in, Bill, because I know you have a lot of uh, Okay, uh, thanks. Um, really what this boils down to is uh, a legal question that's going to be fleshed out at some point by the high courts, and it just absolutely has to because this MERS business model is uh, – uh, is, I hate to say it, but it's, it's, it's a fraudulent business model. And what we're finding out through aggressive discovery, and it's, and it's not just this particular case but others that I'm involved in, is after drilling down and drilling down and then beginning to actually dig deeper from that point, um, it's becoming more obvious and clear that all of this authority and agency that these you know tens of thousands of signers and servicers and everybody on the planet who claims to be a MERS member, quote-unquote, uh, may not actually have been members to begin with. It is such a mess, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But what this really boils down to is overall is does MERS live on forever, okay? And when I say that is, you know, they take the position that because they're named as the beneficiary or the mortgagee, acting solely as a nominee for the lender, and lender's a successor size, means that when that document is recorded in the public record that they remain an agent essentially for till the end of time and that is simply uh, arguably not the case and the reason why one of the many arguments as to why that's not the case uh, I believe is that MERS's own policies and procedures their own governing instruments when you really start to delve into um, what their members are supposed to abide by. Now, I'm going to segue a little bit off uh, for a second here and just say that when you split in a litigation case, you split MERS away from the actual servicer and you isolate them to the side and kind of pit one, you know, each against each other. MERS is going to take the position that every member and everything in their system and everything that's done in their name uh, requires that the governing instruments be, be adhered to uh, at all times, that a membership agreement be executed between MERS and that party, and that the accuracy of all the information and the documents and everything done in MERS's name, uh, basically under an honor system, is, is that it's, it's done accurately. Uh, even though it appears MERS has no way to police it, MERS, I mean, everybody's running amok. MERS is not following up with who's doing what. Therefore, uh, my opinion is that everything that MERS produces in a case or the servicer produces in MERS' name, such as milestone reports, like I'm sure a lot of listeners have heard of those, all of that data is completely unreliable. 
because there's no one at the end of the day who can attest to who entered it and when and any of the specifics, okay? Now, I'm not saying that you you still don't want to go after this information, but I'm just saying everything that they produced is, is, is virtually unreliable. But anyhow, this authority that uh, they say lives on forever, their own policies and procedures clearly state that that's not the truth. Now, one of the things that we've uh, been trying to to put forth and argue before the courts, especially when it comes to chain of title, is that when you have a securitized loan, so let's just take, for example, a countrywide trust, and the loan was allegedly sold to a trust, a countrywide, a Seawalt trust, for example, in, let's say, 2005, and then you get that... uh, assignment from MERS's nominee from whoever to the trust, you know, years after the closing. Well, one of the things that we've always been trying to uh, put forth and, and, and argue for the court is that, look, in order, if this loan allegedly went into this trust, and let's even presume that the trust got this loan, the, the documents state that the purchase agreements and everything that were required to sell these loans to the trust uh, had to go through the depositors. So for a countrywide trust, a lot of times the depositor was Seawalt Inc. And even though it was kind of a simultaneous, allegedly quick transaction from the depositor and then the depositor to the issuing entity trust, we have found out, for example, and I'm finding this out in, in a lot more cases now because we know where to specifically uh, hit these buttons. MERS is admitting that it has no communications, agency, membership, anything with Seawalt Inc. or virtually uh, any of the depositor entities uh, that we've brought up. So like another one, Structured Asset Securities Corp, SAS, for example. They're admitting we don't have any agreements with them. Now, when you look at the MERS policy manuals and dissect it and you and review the testimony by MERS officers uh, when push comes to shove, Those policy manuals require that when a loan is transferred and assigned to a non-MERS member, so that would be Seawalt Inc. as a depositor, for example, it requires complete resignation and deactivation within the MERS system. Okay. Now, why is that really important? There's a deposition that I was involved in, have information on of, of MERS, and we asked specifically, what does deactivation truly mean when uh, a loan is deactivated within your system? And the answer was crystal clear. It means that the servicer is reporting to us that that MERS no longer has any uh, rights or beneficial interests in the recorded mortgages or deeds of trust in the public record from that point forward. They're, they essentially resign and they're done. So going back to this quiet title case, for example, where MERS is crying foul because they were never you know, served, the reality of it is is that had this loan been sold to the trust as they represented and warranted through their depositors and so on and to the issuing entity back in you know, 05, 06, MERS was required to resign and deactivate at that moment in time meaning that they they're, they're no longer have any interest in the recorded deed of trust or the mortgage. Now, how do they get uh, the loan to continue in the MERS milestone reports? Well, that's interesting, 
okay? Because, first of all, I think that information is uh, uh, manipulated many, many times by the parties in preparation for litigation. And I have evidence to show, and what I believe is that these milestone reports are being altered and backdated as well as the MERS applications, okay? So this is where it gets even more uh, bizarre, and, and it doesn't surprise probably most listeners that they're willing to resort to cutting and pasting documents and so on and so forth. What I'm seeing in, in uh, these discovery requests from MERS is that we're saying, okay, who had the authority to do what they did in your name? And your manual says that you are required to be a member, only members, uh, have the authority to execute documents such as assignments in their name or file lawsuits in them. You must be a member. Okay, so show us your member agreements that you state uh, are a requirement in your policies, procedures, and rules manual, your governing documents. Well, they're not producing many of these. What they're producing is applications, all right? And the applications are showing a, a number of different entities uh, upon request when they allegedly uh, faxed in their application to become a MERS member. Now, I'm starting to see more and more of these applications that are undated, they're not signed, they're they're done sort of haphazard, uh, they don't have the approval and dates of approval marked in, they look like they're done in haste. I'm seeing cut and paste <laughs> dates in there. Uh, and the reason why I'm seeing, I think, those cut and paste dates is that, for example, we have a MERS application by an entity that was, uh, they applied for membership in uh, like April of two. April of 2006, or no, September of 2006. However, and it says right there, it's stamped by MERS application received in September of 06. It has the fax line across the top. Well, then we have a cut and paste at the bottom that uh, with a date that forgot to put the party's signature who executed it in there, but they put a date in there to predate the MERS uh, entry in the MERS milestone report to co to make it look as though that was a member at the time the trust closed, all right? So clearly something's got them nervous where they're willing to, it appears to doctor and alter documents to make it appear as though the member, uh, these parties in the transfer system were members when they weren't, okay? So uh, my, my what I'm going to say here as a uh, form of or a bit of advice <clears throat> is that, you you have to go beyond just these applications. You've got to start to drill down and say, no, these are only applications. According to your MERS uh, rules, these parties have to submit more than just the application. Their financials and all kinds of things, they have to be approved. And at the end of approval, there has to be an executed actual MERS membership agreement executed and signed by both parties. Okay, We're not seeing that. All right, we're not so so now uh, when you presume or, or anybody's presuming that any of these parties are MERS members just because they may go online and see a MERS ID number or MERS min numbers and all this stuff all over the documents, none of this 
proves that any of these parties were actually MERS members. And, and again, that's the only way that they could initially have the authority to do anything. Now, what's also very interesting in peeling back and looking at some of these internal documents that were submitted by these parties is that there's a number of different levels of MERS membership. And there's, there, there are primary members, there are secondary members, and there are affiliate members, okay? Now, all of these affiliates, for example, that uh, they put on the applications. So, for example, if you have a countrywide, and we all know countrywide used multiple different named entities, countrywide home loans, countrywide bank FSB, countrywide a division of Treasury Bank, I mean, all these different uh, entities, custodial services, they're gonna, many of those uh, will show up on the application as having affiliate member numbers or IDs, okay? And what's very important here is if, if these parties executing these documents were executing on behalf of affiliates, affiliate members, the MERS Rules Manual specifically states that affiliates are not members. They're not members whatsoever, and they do not have corporate resolution to, and the authority by corporate resolution to execute any of these documents. So it starts to get real clear here uh, as we're drilling down that all of this authority, it, I mean, it, it, there's a good chance that it doesn't exist. And so my recommendation here is if you have MERS as a, as a, as a party on your, on your document, and most people do, whether they're a party to the case or not, I think they're, they're subject to subpoena. They've got to be called in, and you've got to get these membership agreements and see what those look like to prove uh, any of this authority. And you've got to, you've got to make sure that uh, they're, they're dragged into any of this. Um, I'll tell you, it's, it's really uh, – you know, I, I knew, having done this all these years – that um, that MERS was just a joke when it comes to trumping up all these documents, but now it's it's even getting more uh, brazen uh, with what I believe is uh, that they're 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 starting to alter documents to to show and try to prove that they were even members to begin with. What do you think of that, Charles? <laughs> long-winded, long-winded uh, 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 run there. No, no, that's that's. Excellent information and uh, an excellent way of framing what the essential issues are here. I think one of the essential issues is the deep dive discovery that's involved here. And from a strategic point of view, looking at foreclosure cases in general, and I would uh, reference this point as one having traction nationally, uh, especially in judicial foreclosure cases. And the reason I say that is uh, in the typical non-judicial foreclosure plaintiff's lawsuit that our borrowers will often bring, the issue about discovery there and the timing is a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario where, on the one hand, if you do discovery right away prior to the scheduling of a demure from a defendant, which is, again, uh, called a motion to dismiss at the federal level. But if you do, do discovery right away, you may not even have meaningful responses 
uh, you may not even beat around two of the responses when there's already a motion to dismiss and demur scheduled. And so since a lot of judges are inclined to kill these cases, essentially in their infancy, certainly when these cases are, follow the metaphor, mere toddlers, uh, that's, that's a, 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 a strategic tactical conundrum that borrowers will face when they're on the plaintiff's side is when do they do discovery? How do they allocate the, the, the always limited resources from our side for those purposes? And oftentimes it makes more sense to do discovery after the case is joined where at least some causes of action are going to go to trial. And then the next proceeding that the other side would have to do to stop that from happening would be a motion for summary judgment. That takes weeks to prepare, months to schedule. Discovery can have, can, can have worked its way through the case in, in, in that instance. Now, I think one reason, uh, Bill, in this particular case, the discovery was able to deep dive is simply beat on the defense side. Uh, I mean, clearly from the defendant litigants' point of view here, uh, if MERS would just, if their case would just collapse or the judge wouldn't be giving them the benefit of the doubt that allowed them to move forward with this case anyway, then uh, discovery wouldn't necessarily be needed. But of course, if the case is moving forward, when you're a defendant, and this absolutely applies in the judicial foreclosure world all over the United States, when you are a defendant in these cases, it absolutely behooves you to do discovery, and it often will behoove you to do discovery sooner rather than later, since borrowers will rarely be able to dismiss uh, one of these judicial foreclosure cases through a demur or a motion to dismiss. So that's one of the main takeaways I have here. Well, yeah, and I and I, I got to just yeah, tell you on that note that um, in cases where the uh, borrower or the client or whatever has the resources to aggressively pursue the discovery efforts against MERS, uh, MERS goes back on their heels, and uh, they most often requ uh, request that discovery be stayed until pending the decision of the dismissal or demur or whatever it is. They want to put a stop to it. They don't want the poking and prodding around. Um, and uh, it's through the aggressive efforts to say, no, we're not, we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to slow down here. We're coming after you and we want answers. And I'll tell you, uh, everybody who is in who has their fingerprints in on the chain of titles of this stuff. Now, I'm talking about the, um, you know, the custodians to the trust, to everybody. If they're not a party or whatever, I mean, I go back to, you know, getting the subpoenas out there and start calling for documents from all these parties because it's coming back. When they all come back with the uh, uh, answers to the, Discovery requests or the the subpoena dues tackles, the documents are, are universally inconsistent. Their positions are uh, uh, they 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 don't add up. They start pointing the finger at each other uh, and blaming each other, and it's just uh, it's it's that's why you have to keep the the pressure on the or keep the pedal to the uh, metal, so to speak, and not give them. Uh, any leeway or, or ability 
need to catch their breath and to uh, figure things out and put their heads together. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And, and even in the non-judicial foreclosure uh, world, uh, particularly, like you say, when somebody has the funding for it, and they don't necessarily have to make critical decisions about spending the limited money they have now as opposed to later, when they can do early discovery simply because they have the resources to put into it, no matter what the court does, that's absolutely an advantage. And, and uh, one aspect to this whole uh, situation, of course, is the quiet title default judgment itself. Why don't you tell the listeners, you know, as a, as a non-attorney, but still somebody who does have a real uh, specialization, so to speak, in this area, why don't you tell the listeners what, what's involved with that, particularly in these non-judicial foreclosure states like California and, and uh, Nevada, Arizona, where you see this quite a bit. What's, what's your take on that? Well, again, as I point out at the beginning, I think that the, these legal issues are going to have to be decided by the higher courts. Right now in California, obviously, uh, MERS is trying to rely heavily on the Robinson and Johnson decision, uh, saying that, look, we're, we're a, a party and we have an interest in this uh, recorded deed of trust and we weren't served and therefore set it all aside. Now, part of the irony and the stupidity of it is <laughs> is that in, in this one particular uh, quiet title action, we, when I went to the prove-up hearing and we talked uh, to the judge and explained everything and laid it on the table and the judge reviewed Merz's role, the judge reviewed uh, uh, the evidence and testimony and what he asked specifically was, uh, why didn't you uh, name the servicer in this? And counsel replied properly that counsel uh, that, uh, that serve the servicer is not required to be served, and the judge agreed. Yeah, you're right. The servicer is not required to be uh, served. But now Merz's position is set everything aside because we weren't served. But what would you have done, Merz, had you been served? We would have simply notified the servicer. <laughs> okay, we would have been right back to square one. So nothing would have changed um, in terms of the servicer's claims to representing these unknown parties who are covered, which we believe arguably, under the publication uh, laws in, in uh, California to say that uh, you're, you're because you hid and concealed the identity of these transfers and because uh, we believe at least your position is that this loan was sold years ago to a trust to non-MERS members requiring deactivation and resignation of MERS means that MERS no longer has any rights by its own admission to the recorded uh, deed of trust in the public record. At that point, it doesn't live on forever because uh, of these of these reasons, and therefore MERS was not required to be served. Now, this is where the line's drawn in the sand, and this is what has to be determined. Does MERS just live on forever? Because MERS wants to have it, you know, it's cake and eat it too. It wants to say, the, you know, MERS will remain in record uh, on title forever unless there's a default. And they'll say yes. that's when we get we relinquish our our interest and in, and in execute the assignments and so on and so forth. Well, what's got them tripped up here is that because the quiet title judgment was entered, MERS has to 
revive and get that deed of trust reinstated so that it can execute its phony assignment. And then at that point, we're just going to be right back to square one, you know, arguing the same point. So it's kind of ridiculous that um, they're saying uh, that, you know, the servicer doesn't have to be served. And MERS only communicates with the servicer, and MERS would only have told the servicer. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous, logical thinking. But I, we're going to get to the bottom of this at, at some point, and I would say uh, I know uh, uh, people are preparing some some briefs for the high, you know, for SCOTUS to review uh, this whole MERS business model and and do they live on forever? So this will be addressed at some point. Yes, but- Excellent information, Bill. I mean, one of the takeaways there is that uh, MERS, by their own rules, is claiming essentially to exit the chain of title, and then particularly relative to the the membership agreement policies, and yet here they are years later claiming they still have a direct interest. It is wholly inconsistent. Uh, Thank you very much for being on the show again today, Bill, and we will be back in two weeks. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.